Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Um, basically, this is uh, week two of Pride Month, and uh, we're just going to go straight into the story. I don't really have much else to say about it, except that uh, if this intro sounds a little bit wonky, it's because um, for my birthday, which is today, I'm now 40 years old. So that's a reality I have to face now. Uh, my wife got me a, a, a Blue Yeti microphone. And I'm still getting used to it, and it's weird speaking this far away from the microphone. I don't like it, but there it is. That's just the way... This is my life now, so get used to it. All right. Um, uh, it, this is Pride Month, so we're going to have... Um, this story is called The Zanies of Sorrow by W.H. Pugmire. Um, it is uh, recorded uh, recorded and produced and published uh, with special permission from S.T. Joshi, the literary executor of W.H. Pugmire's estate. Um, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Joshi. I really appreciate you allowing us to do it. And um, just remember, as you go about as you go about your week, black lives matter, gay lives matter, trans lives matter, lesbian lives matter, bisexual, asexual, and non-binary lives matter. And the Weird Tales podcast stands in solidarity with all of you. Thank you. Hello there, Dominic here. I'd just like to take a moment before diving into today's short story to tell you about some projects I'm really excited about. The first is This Planet Needs a Name. Imagine a handful of scientists and engineers setting out to terraform a planet, a world for the frozen people they've gotten to. Just a few people, carefully chosen, who will live out their lives building something they'll never see. Well, that's what this story's all about. Building a future. Full disclosure, though I do play a featured role, I am a big fan of this show. If you like queer space drama that's full of heart and comedy, this is a must-listen for you. This Planet Needs a Name is a science fiction audio drama suitable for our times. It is written and produced by Evan Tess Murray and Trace Callahan. It's available on all popular streaming platforms where you can find podcasts. The second show I'd like to mention is Day Room. Day Room is a web series that captures the healing moments between two roommates, a sex worker named Luna, and a theater artist named Nikki. Each episode is centered around the time of day during which these two women come together on their couch and exist without the hyper-visibility that being a black woman comes with. It is an absolutely hilarious and raw new show that you should definitely go check out. It is written and produced by Talia Sablon, and you can find the first episode up on Vimeo for your viewing pleasure. If you'd like to support either of these shows, both are currently running fundraising campaigns to go towards things like compensating actors, renting equipment, and covering other production expenses. Links for both of these shows and their fundraising campaigns can be found in the show notes. And if you're interested in finding more of my work, you can check out my Squarespace, domendez.squarespace.com. That's D-O-M-E-N-D-E-Z dot squarespace dot com. I can also be found on Twitter at the handle at Domendez with two Zs. Again, all links can be found in the show notes. One last thank you to Weird Tales Pod for inviting me on for one of this month's episodes. This idea to put together episodes written by queer authors and read by queer actors came about early in the month, and Mike's really been a star at making all of that possible. All right, that's enough from me. And with that, on to today's episode. The Zanies of Sorrow, written by W. H. Pugmire and read by Dominic Mendez. 
From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. Edgar Allan Poe It was music that brought me into the twilight world of wonder and terror. I had lived in my new quarters for a few days, delighted in my escape from a wretched former existence. My frugal savings were such that I could live in comfort for six months without employment, enough time to complete my novel. Quietly, without spectacle, I left my dreary job, my boring friends, my unsympathetic family, and found a lonely apartment in a forgotten and desolate section of the city. My escape was complete. I had my cat, my laptop, and my library, and no one knew of my department, my destination. For half a year, I would live what I had yearned for. A life of reading and writing, undisturbed by humanity, in complete solitude. I realized, of course, that getting one's wish is not always the happy situation one imagines it to be. As Oscar Wilde once wrote, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Still, the first few days were a time of joy absolute. My rooms were spacious, the furniture was good, the neighborhood free of racket. I had informed my new landlord, Mr. Ballon, that quiet was essential if I were to be able to work on my book. He gave me a room with windows facing the back garden so I wouldn't hear any possible traffic on the road in front of the building. All went well until late one evening when, as I sat in my cozy armchair with pen in hand and cat on lap, there came from across the hallway a faint sound of someone at their pianoforte. At first I was annoyed at this intrusion of sound, subdued though it was, yet the longer I listened, the more I was beguiled. The music contained a quality of sorrow such as I had never experienced in art. I strained with listening, astounded as tears welled within my eyes. And when abruptly the music ceased, I found myself longing for its continuation. The next morning I encountered my landlord in the laundry room. Things are going well, Mr. Stone, he said. You're writing? Yes, very well, thank you. Your rooms are very quiet, yes? They are. I did hear last night the piano playing from across the hall, but that is all. At night? That cannot be allowed. I will inform Miss Greaves to keep it down, as is the saying here. Oh, it's not a nuisance, I replied hurriedly. I will mention it to her, no worry. He rushed off before I could protest further. I spent the afternoon feeling agitated and could not concentrate on work. Finally, I made bold enough to step into the hallway and rap on my neighbor's door. It opened, and my nostrils took in a very pleasant scent. The woman who stood before me was alluring, so much so that for a moment I could not find my tongue. She raised her eyebrows in query. Do forgive me, miss. I live across the hallway and... Ah, oh, Mr. Stone, I had meant to knock on your door this evening. Mr. Bullon has misunderstood me. I was in no way complaining. Your playing is very faint, not disturbing at all. Disarmingly, she smiled. You are very kind. By her accent, I took her to be European. Her green eyes were kind, but 
seemed guarded. It surprised me when she stepped back and opened the door widely. I was just preparing my evening coffee. Will you join me? Certainly, I said. Crossing the threshold, I entered into another world, an older realm. I could not believe that this apartment was identical to my own. Soft lamplight illuminated many fine pieces of old furniture, and one entire wall was taken up with sturdy old bookcases crammed with hardcover editions. The shades of many beautiful lamps were covered, and squares of silk or lace and scented candles perfumed the room with fragrance. Be seated, Mr. Stone, she told me, motioning to a chair beside a wooden stand. Please, call me Albert. She smiled and bowed her head. And I am Lucretia. Pardon me one moment. Rather than sitting, I crossed to the bookcases and examined the titles. She returned after a short while, holding a tray of coffee cups and stones. You are an author, I'm told. Yes, mostly of short stories, although now I'm working on my first novel. My attention had been caught by a row of titles by Henry James, one of which looked like his unfinished novel, The Sense of the Past, in its original New York edition. My rule was never to handle books belonging to another's library, unless invited to do so. Setting down her tray and perhaps sensing my bibliophilic ache, Lucretia reached for the James volume and offered it to me. Oh, thank you, I said. He was such a skilled writer, such discipline. Her low, musical voice replied, Discipline is a lesson one cultivates with years. You are very young. I'm 27. As old as that. Her smile was playful. What is it you write of? Your genre. Human relations, social curiosities, with a touch of the uncanny. Mossapon and James have been the chief influences of my shorter fiction. I've had one short story collection published by a specialty press, but it sold poorly. Most modern readers find my style a bit antiquated and affected. My novel is actually an attempt to write something like James's book here, a semi-ghost story that overflows with ambiguity and implication. I want to conjure up a thing that may or may not exist, with the novel's focus being the perplexing state of a mind that is haunted. I am very much fond of Henry James. There's a poetry in his prose, much digging into the strange human psyche. His tales of innocent Americans lured by the debaucheries of European decadence so amused me. You're from Europe. She tilted her head a little and then nodded slightly. I was raised in a small village, a very simple town. But I have been in your glorious country for a long time and have absolutely adapted. I studied her and tried to deduce her age. Although she looked in her early thirties, there was an air about her of someone much older. But perhaps that was merely her European manner, to which I was unaccustomed. Returning her book to its shelf, I sat in the chair she had indicated and reached for the coffee cup she offered me. The brew was perfection. Miss Greve sat on a small sofa and placed her tray on the low table before her. 
We sipped and munched and talked of literature. Now and then I glanced at the piano that stood in one corner of the room. She seemed at last to notice. Do you play, Albert? No, I'm not at all musical, but I enjoy listening to others perform. The woman hesitated, sucking at her lips. Pardon me if I do not play for you. It is a very personal expression for me, my music. Perhaps as your writing is for you. I can play in privacy, but I cannot perform. She shrugged her shoulders and attempted an apologetic smile. I understand completely. I need total silence and solitude when I write. I hoped my grin concealed my disappointment. I hoped my grin concealed my disappointment. Well, I've kept you long enough, and I have work to do. Setting my coffee cup on the stand beside the chair, I rose and walked towards the door. When I stopped to look at her again, I saw she had not risen from the sofa. Will you visit me again, Albert? I was suddenly overwhelmed with a sense of isolation in the room. She seemed, at the moment, small and foreign and very much alone. I'd like to, yes. I turned from her, crossed through the threshold, and shut the door. For the next fortnight, I was consumed with creativity. Something about that encounter with my mysterious neighbor had set my imagination on fire, and I modeled a main character in my novel on my fantasy of what her life might have been before coming to the States. Lucretia had become kind of a vision for me, more a personality I had created than than an individual I'd actually encountered. Finally, I ached to see her again, to judge if my memory of her character was anything like the persona I had depicted on my pages. Our second visit was pleasant enough, and it had trusted me that the woman kept her aura of mystery, a thing I found I had no wish to penetrate, because I liked the quality of unreality that was my fantasy of her. Thus, I was a little concerted when... Preparing to return to my room after the second visit, she stopped me at the door. I know that you are busy with your book and that you are not a social person, but I was wondering if you would care to join me next Wednesday afternoon to visit an old relation. He is a lonely creature who loves literature, as we do. She stopped speaking and gazed at me quizzically, perhaps thinking that her sudden invitation had been an impulsive error. I'd love to. Is he your grandfather? No, an uncle from the old country, quite advanced in years, but recently arrived from our homeland. Really, you will come? Of course I will. She took hold of my hands, and for one moment I thought she was going to kiss me. When she didn't, I lifted one of her hands to my mouth and touched my lips to it. She gazed at me with the queerest expression on her face. And then we both burst into laughter and I returned to my quarters. Now, I had always been a bit of an introvert, socially awkward and shy. I believed with Wilde that the only possible society is oneself. Yet I had been touched in a strange new way. It wasn't a romantic sensation, for I had no sexual interest in women. I think it was simply that I had never met anyone like Miss Grieve before, and she intrigued me in ways that were original. 
Wednesday arrived, and I felt a kind of enchantment as I walked beside her on the sidewalk. Nonchalantly, I studied her face for the first time in daylight and tried once more to determine her age. Her complexion was smooth, void of spots or wrinkles, and her happy eyes looked youthful. She had insisted that we walk rather than take a taxi. The distance was not too great, and the weather was pleasant. At one point we passed a high granite wall to which she gestured. Have you been in there? It's a calm and pleasing place. You're not morbid about graveyards, are you? Not at all, I reassured her. Coming to its entrance, we strolled into the cemetery. There was a slight breeze, and I watched the subtle sway of the laburnum with their poisonous yellow flowers. I took in the plumes of white and pale pink lilac. At one corner of the old stone wall stood a gigantic willow tree, its long pale vines drooping to the ground. With a burst of boyish glee, I rushed to the willow and wrapped some vines around my hands as I frolicked in the sod. I dance with the dead and invoke their shades from their immemorial pits of blackness. Rise, neglected souls, and join my gamble. Lucretia laughed and clapped in time to the movement of my feet. I watched as she lifted her hands above her head and formed her fingers queerly. A cloud must have swallowed sunlight, for the place darkened and the air grew cool. I noticed some few peculiar spots of shadow that formed on the ground just beyond her, and I ceased my movement as those patches of gloom seemed to writhe and swirl and rise. It was a phenomenon I had seen before, little whirlwinds of dust and debris that formulate at times. Dust devils, I think they're called. These were very small, and yet something in the way they formed themselves unnerved me. I watched in a kind of worry engulfed me as one of the minute whirlwinds took on a quasi-human form. Lucretia turned to smile at me, but when she noticed the expression on my face, she lowered her hands and stomped one foot to the ground. Swiftly, the tiny whirlwinds broke apart and faded, as the sun regained its splendor. That was a merry little performance, she told me as she walked to where I stood. I shrugged. I sometimes play the fool. But I do love graveyards, to dwell among the happy dead. The dead are happy? Of course they are. They're dead, you see. We laughed together. But what of the spirit? I never think about that, I answered, releasing my hands from the willow vines. I rather hate the idea of eternity. You and I are material matter, chemical components. We live our story and end as dust and ash. That at least is my fervent prayer. To go on eternally as spirit or any other entity. God, what can be more damnable than eternal life? She stiffened momentarily and her eyes clouded as if she had been seized with weird emotion. The brightening sunlight played upon her eyes and I thought those eyes were wet with pearls of tears. Then she smiled and brushed the tears away with one lovely hand. We've dotted long enough. Let us go. Departing the cemetery, we continued our walk, arriving at last at a neighborhood that seemed deserted. Many houses were vacant, their doorways and windows boarded. I detected a smell of decay in the air and was nonplussed by the neighborhood's sense of abandonment. We encountered no one. 
I turned to look at her and noticed a kind of nervousness in her expression, as if she had regretted having brought me and wished there was some way to lead me away. Reaching for her hand, I squeezed it reassuringly as we climbed the porch steps and she rapped on the wide wooden door, which was opened by a lean elderly gentleman. They exchanged words in a strange tongue, and then he allowed us entrance. My uncle is in his courtyard resting. He's been ill. His heart, I think. We mustn't tire him. I nodded as she led me to a back door through which we passed onto an expanse of yard surrounded by a sturdy growth of tall shrubbery. Beneath a fig tree fanning himself as he lounged on a large divan was a creature so grotesque it shook my fortitude to look upon him. If the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland had risen from its grave as a bloated, lichenous thing, it might resemble the being at which I gawked. I sensed that he was fantastically ancient, the oldest person I had ever encountered. Not an uncle, but a triple great ancestor. Lucretia motioned for me to wait and went to the divan, conversing with the horror in an alien language. Then, turning to me and holding out one hand, she said in English, This is Mr. Albert Stone. Albert, my uncle. Nicodemus Grave. Screwing my courage to the sticking place, I stalked towards the figure on the divan, took his proffered hand in mine, and shuddered at the heavy press of moist and flabby fingers. He held me tightly and too long. It proved impossible not to stare at his face, with its bumps and rolls, its growths and moles. He smiled horribly, and his visage seemed to mask a false mirth from which a pair of sapient orbs observed me. Why would he not let go of my hand? His touch, the fabric of his flesh, contained a kind of force and unsuspected energy. I fancied that I could detect something, some component of his corporality. His dewy lips stretched wider still, and a voice that dripped with pleasure spoke. You are very welcome to my home, Mr. Stone. Lucretia has spoken of you with enthusiasm, and I'm happy to at last make acquaintance. His accent was far more pronounced than that of his niece. He at last released my hand. Thank you. You're very kind, I murmured. Please to sit. That long chair is most comfortable. Lucretia is not one to form so fast a friendship. Where we come from, we mostly keep to ourselves. I turned to look at her as Lucretia and I sat in chairs. You never actually told me where you're from. The old man answered for her. A little village that no one has heard of. He shrugged and smiled at his niece, and I sensed a cryptic energy implicated in their furtive glances. I noticed him peering at me again, with a kind of longing in his eyes. For conversation, perhaps. And as I tried to smile at him, I intuited his profound loneliness, his need for social connection. Why, then, he had settled in such a derelict part of town was beyond comprehension. He looked a sad old fellow, his dainty fan held limply in one hand. His grotesque frame was encased in what looked like pajamas of yellow silk. I saw that his malformed feet were bare. Feeling awkward, I fished for something to say. I've never been abroad. Lack of time and money. Two, I'm very stupid when it comes to learning languages. 
Now and then I've borrowed recordings from the library that teach French and Italian, but my lazy brain revolts at such exertion. I am familiar with both languages, he informed me. From the old books of my ancestral library, my poor English I learned from a fellow with whom I spent time in prison. A pregnant pause. I was for many years incarcerated. Is that the word? This last was spoken to his niece, who replied in a scolding tone in their native idiom. He answered shortly in the same tongue, and then smiled at me and nodded. With little to do except read from inadequate libraries and sing to the dust, I passed the time learning your so peculiar language. One new delight since coming to your country is to... One new delight since coming to your country is to read the books of America. None of the books in my former library were in English. I missed those books. They were scattered while I was locked away. Except for some, few of the very oldest books, the books of my ancestors. They were hidden from the village thieves and returned to me. Your English is quite good, I assured him. My companion behind bars was a poet. He taught me the language by reciting verse from memory. Endured up, our prisoners are mostly poets and madmen, Mr. Wilde and Villon and Desade. It is not an easy life, incarcerated by ignorant village idiots who lack imagination. His voice had risen with emotion and his eyes flashed with subdued fury. One hand went to its chest. His kinswoman frowned. Do not excite yourself, Nicodemus. Ignoring her, he kept his eyes on me. I was, for so long, locked up in my little cell. My captors could no longer remember my great offence. But they never lost their fear and hatred of our kind. No, that does not become forgotten. Enough, she told him. Pah! Our guest is an author, student of life. I give him a glimpse of a life such as he cannot imagine. He should know that in this modern world, in small neglected places, souls are still in prison for necromancy. Pah! The ancient face had become flushed and moisture formed on the bottom lip. Miss Greaves smiled apologetically. This is my eccentric uncle, her expression seemed to say. Yet her eyes revealed that he was also someone whom she loved. I'm not much versed in the black arts, I offered lamely. The creature laughed. Black? No, no. The old arts. The very old religion. The secret ways taught on scrolls and ancient tomes, spilled from ancient tongues. We learn the simple things, the calling of the wind, the summoning of the storm. In time we learn the oldest arts, to call down dwellers from the stars, to raise up gestures from beneath the earth. You raise the dead? That's what necromancy is, isn't it? Enough of this silly talk, the woman suddenly injected. Her uncle held up one hand to silence her. I found myself unusually interested, and it suddenly occurred to me that I was no longer concerned with the fellow's wretched ugliness. I had read accounts of persons who, when first encountering Oscar Wilde, were repulsed by his physical appearance. Yet, the longer they sat with him and listened to the music of his voice, the more enchanted they became. I found myself in a similar circumstance. Negromancy is more art of speaking with dead. And in our circle, we learn ways to speak with the dreaming dead. And though we make no sacrifice to them, as I had been accused, it was unusual that we were arrested for crimes of others, but we were hated. 
He scanned the sky, which was now brilliant with sunset. Of course, I had been in prison before, as a child, for stealing and begging. You know what a hungry child must do. Once. And he smiled at the memory. I was imprisoned for raising a storm that frightened the governor's horse. Do you remember, Lucretia? I glanced at her and saw her smiling. She too had evidently been caught in the weaving of his vocal spell. But it was for my great crime that I was put away for so long. My parents and my uncle had been falsely accused of a murder and executed. It was injustice. His emotional state increased and he put his hands to his heart once more. Do not work yourself so, Lucretia chided him and then looked at me. His health is delicate, but he will not see a doctor. Now I am going for refreshments, and this nonsense talk will cease. We watched her rise and walk into the house. When he began with his narrative, he almost whispered the words, as if to conceal their sound from other potential listeners. We had ancient scroll that teach the summoning of Eogsatat, the outer one, who, through dreaming, instructs the raising of dead matter. It is a terrible alchemy, and the use of it was mostly forbidden to our clan. But I... I did not care. I was young. But in the frenzy of my emotional state, I must have misspoke the spell. My art was flawed. I had risen my departed loved ones, for which I was placed in prison. I watched from my little window as the authorities tried once more to execute my parents. They could not. I do not know how I erred when I spoke the arcade language and threw the runes. Perhaps I was not myself, overwhelmed as I was with emotion. He shrugged and peered ominously. Perhaps I was not entirely sane, but such was the result of my sorcery, Mr. Stone, that they whom I raised could never again depart in death. They would exist forever. Is that not unspeakable, Mr. Stone? We sat in silence and observed the rising moon, an orange medallion that glowed in the demijour of dusk. I watched as Lucretia and the elderly servant fellow exited the house so as to join us. She carried a jug of liquid and three glasses, and he a tray on which an assortment of snack items had been arranged. She set the items on a small round table near us, and then took the tray from her servant. Fritz, perhaps we may have some music. The fellow bowed to her and returned to the house as she poured golden liqueur into the glasses, which she offered to us before returning to her chair. We sat in silence and listened to the night, and then Lucretia began to hum softly to herself. I was inwardly alert, for the melody was the one that she had played on her piano, the eerie melancholy tune that had so beguiled me. The woman's old relation began to hum as well, in a voice that was sweetly melodic. I studied them in silence, noting the sadness that dwelt within their moonlit eyes. A sudden wave of profound despondency took hold of me, and tears gathered in my eyes. Distant music sounded, and I turned to watch the servant as he drifted towards us playing a violin. The sound of his performance pierced my heart with grief, and I trembled in my chair as the old man in his silk pajamas struggled out of his chair and began to move and dance across the grass. His caper was uncouth, and moonlight revealed the peculiar expression on his face. His caper was uncouth, and moonlight revealed the peculiar expression on his face, which somehow reminded me of Emmett Kelly, the circus performer who had created the clown called Weary Willie. Mr. Grieve jerked his limbs as he moved, as if he were some awful marionette that had escaped its strings. 
I watched as he raised one hand above his dome and moved its fingers in a curious manner. This had reminded me of the incident in the cemetery, where his niece had performed a similar gesture. The subdued sound of the old man's humming increased in volume as wordless song, and the mourning on his expressive face augmented. I became aware of circles of churning shadows and grass not far from where we stood. One of these swirling disks convulsed, and elements of it lifted into the air as obsidian froth that shaped itself into a phantasm. Protruding branches that imitated limbs formed spasmodically from the specter as it began to jerk in imitation of Mr. Greaves' unnatural contortion. It raised a kind of continence to the moon, a visage that mimicked the old man's sorrowfulness and deepened it. The pathos expressed in the eerie violin music seemed to wring my heart, and I wept freely as I stood and stepped to where the woman sat. Another circle of gloom, the one nearest us, began to rise as a shifting Edelon. I imagined that a current of frigid air wafted from it, and I shivered, with staccato sound issuing from the place where it wore a kind of mouth. The being jerked towards us in an almost comical manner. Its face, now near my own, took on solidity, and I was again reminded of Emmett Kelly and his world-weary tramp. God, that ghastly face, like the visage of a clown whose heart had broken. Its expression seemed to sum up all that was sick and wretched in the world. The thing jerked away nearer to the ancient man and opened its mouth in moaning the elderly fellow's haunting tune. They both began to judder spasmodically in a way that, under different circumstances, would have been uproarious. I imagined that the earth trembled beneath me in response to the heavy footfalls of the mammoth old man, whose movements increased with wildness. Turning to gape at Lucretia, I saw that she too had risen to her feet. Her eyes were shut, and she swayed as if enchanted with the sound surrounding us. I watched as she raised her hands and saw some distance from her the new circle of churning darkness that began to form. And then there was a strangled cry of pain and the music stopped. I heard a thud as some weighty object fell to earth. Turning, I saw that Nicodemus Grave lay prostrate on the ground, his hand clutching at his chest just above his heart. The macabre buffoons of shadow stretched their spectral mouth with wailing, and then began to break apart. I watched as their essence dropped to the ground and vanished beneath the overgrown lawn. I watched as their essence dropped to the ground and vanished beneath the overgrown lawn. Fretfully, I turned to Lucretia and yelped in horror when I saw that she too had collapsed upon the earth, where she twitched convulsively. I rushed to her and lifted her torso in an embrace. She clasped her arms around me forcefully for some few moments and then pushed herself away from me and crawled to her relation. Gently, she lifted his head and set it onto her lap. One of his awful hands reached to her tear-stained face, and they exchanged words in a language I did not understand. I crawled to them as the fellow's heavy hand fell to the grass, and I reached for his hand that had once so repulsed me. His grasp was weak, and the former power that I had experienced in his hold had grown diminished. I squeezed the hand, and he looked at me and managed a feeble smile. Then he turned his eyes to his kinswoman and whispered, Forgive me. Perhaps once I have faded, you too will be released. His eyes closed, and the faint force that once generated in his hand departed. And posh we quiescent, I whispered as Lucretia graced me with a smile of gratitude. 
Why did he beg your forgiveness? I was bold enough to ask her. What was your uncle's awful woe? Her voice was raspy and choked as she answered. He was not my uncle. He was my son. <laughs>